0: All right. Thank you, praise team. Okay, so it's good to see you guys here this morning. I, I had a thought that, oh, you know, it's this extended Fourth of July weekend, and I knew that a good chunk of you were going to be gone. And then I thought, well, man, if there's only like five people here, do I still go 45 minutes or do we make it shorter? And you were going to get it regardless. So, so we're going we're gonna to jump right in. Uh, but we are continuing um, our series uh, life in the Spirit. And we're just, we're just walking through Romans 8, and uh, we're, we're um, at week three of, of the four weeks as we do this. And so there's some things that we're going to dig into today as we start to get into, deeper into, uh, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. And so far what we've seen is it's all about, everything is all about how the Holy Spirit um, comes alongside of us, and that we're not who we were. It doesn't mean we won't struggle with things that we used to struggle with. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you understand what I'm saying when I say you continue to struggle with things that you struggled with before you became a Christian. They didn't automatically just disappear. And life gets difficult. But the Holy Spirit is there to guide and empower. And we're going to see that come through today so clearly as we continue uh, in Romans 18. And we're going to actually hit a topic today that most of you, I'm imagining, have struggled with at some point in time. Today, we, we have to talk about evil. we got to talk about pain, suffering. we got to talk about the, the reality of the fact that in this world that we live in, it doesn't always go well. And the problem with that is that we, we tend to have this idea that if God were really in charge, that things would go better. And I'm imagining, you don't have to raise your hand for this, but I'm imagining that many of you have experienced what you would consider to be um, pretty significant, significant evil or suffering in your life. I think about, like, what's the worst that could happen? And when I think about what's the worst that could happen, very rarely does it have to do with me. When I think about what's the worst that could happen, I almost always think about my family, specifically my kids. And I can't can't imagine something worse than losing a child. My grandparents um, on on my dad's side had five kids. My grandma passed away about 18 months ago. They lived a good life, um, both strong in the Lord. Um, my grandma wasn't always the most pleasant woman, but I like to think that was because she was just old and grumpy. Um, and here's why. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, I, I, see, here's the thing. If grandma's listening, it's in heaven, and so, like, she's not mad at me at all right now. Um, if she were listening to me and she was still alive, it would be a different story. But, but, but grandma and grandpa had five children, and, and they buried three of them. And I remember having a conversation with her that there's nothing more difficult than burying your own child. And then she had to do it not once, not just twice, but, but three times. But at least her children were grown. And then I think about what happens when, when we have to bury younger children and the evil in the world that just seems to be there. When I say evil, I don't always just mean like people being evil towards other people, but just the fact that, that things in the world don't work the way they're supposed to. There's, there's physical evil, there's natural evil, there's, there's people being evil to other people and the world just doesn't make sense in light of a God that's supposed to be awesome and take care of everything. But, but we've, we've experienced this in our, in our own church family. We've heard from Amy Redlinger before, who talked about losing um, her young daughter, and we're actually going to hear from uh, John and Tina Clapp later today, as they're going to they're talk about um, figuring out where God is and how God is um, and, and is working uh, with the loss of their son, J.R., uh, from a year and a half ago, okay? And so we're going to hear from them, but the thing that we have to reconcile is that evil happens, and evil scares Christians, and evil scares Christians because we hate to think about what that says about the God that we claim to love and serve. See, evil is the apparent proof of atheism. Okay? It, the, the logic goes like this. If oh, here we go. That seriously? That's the one I wanted. If God is all good, then he would do all good and no evil. And of course, the Christian doctrine tells us that God is good, right? Uh, In fact, we've got this pithy little saying that we like to do where somebody feeling extra spiritual will say God is good and you guys feeling extra spiritual will say all the time and then I, because I can repeat things, I will say all the time and then you'll say God is good, right? So we do, yeah, we get this, that, that God is supposed to be good all the time and if God were really good then he would will good all the time and never evil. You're not going to get a Christian to disagree with that statement. And then we get to this next one. And if God were all-powerful, that's another tenet of Christianity. It's the doctrine of omnipotence, okay? You don't care. just means God's powerful. He can do whatever He wants. And if God were really all-powerful, then He would always get His way. He would accomplish everything that He wills. And we already said He would just will good things, never evil things. But the reality of the world we live in, is that evil exists and good exists. Therefore, God isn't all good, God can't be all powerful, or both. And it's the apparent proof of atheism, or at least agnosticism, that says, you know, God isn't, at the very least, he is not the God of the Bible. Perhaps there's a God, probably not, but if there is, he's nothing like the God of the Bible because an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God would never allow evil to happen. And this is the tension. This is why we Christians tend to shy away from these kinds of arguments uh, or we call no joy or we say it's not fair. uh, But the reality is this is a topic we have to be able to answer. And God gives us clear answers in Scripture. Now, you know what God doesn't do? God doesn't ever say in scripture, Matt, that's why this happened. God doesn't say to J.R., or I'm sorry, to John and Tina, guys, this is why J.R. died. He never said to my grandma, this is why three of your children passed away, this specific reason. But when we get into scripture, what we're going to see is that God does tell us where evil comes from, and he does tell us what he's doing about it. And he does tell us how, uh, in the midst of all of it, the Holy Spirit does something, that God is doing something to make it right. And so we're going to track that today in uh, this chunk of Romans 8. In fact, we're going to see in Scripture, we're going to share a principle, a promise, and a perspective. So if you like the letter P, we're in good shape today. Okay, we're gonna have a a principle that we all as Christians need to understand, a promise that's good for all of us Christians, and a perspective that if we keep it, if we hold it, will help us answer this question about evil, all in in these 13 verses in Romans 8. So we're gonna jump right into the, the principle. The principle just is this suffering is the normal experience for the Christian. Okay? Now suffering is actually the normal experience for everyone okay, but understand this that I'm going to tell you, and it's not going to make you happy if you're a Christian here today. Suffering plus is the normal experience for the Christian, and some of us think it should be opposite of that, but that's not the case, and we'll see that as we get in to the text here. So we'll start and pick up Romans eight seventeen, and it says this, and since we are his children, we discussed this last week, this idea of being co-heirs with Christ, that we as Christians, um, our old self is gone, the new self has come in its place, the Holy Spirit lives in us, it's a down payment on future glory, all of this is happening. Since we are his children, since this reality, we are heirs of God's glory. That's great news. You are an heir of God's glory. Oh, wait, though. There's more. But if we are to share his glory, then we also have to share in his suffering. And that's the reality for Christians. That's the principle that we have to deal with, is that, you know what? Suffering is the normal experience. If you're going to share in the glory of Jesus Christ, and you are as a Christian, I'm going to tell you this now, and we're going to get into this in a little bit as we start to look at the promise of salvation, okay? But if you are a Christian here now, your glory is certain. It's not up for debate. It's not up for grabs. Your glory, your glorification, it is certain. But if you are to share in Christ's Glory as sons of God, as co-heirs with Christ. If you're going to share in that glory, you share in everything else that comes with it. You share in everything else that comes with it. It's the same thing that happens when you get married, right? You get married, and and all of the good stuff that I got from Carrie marrying me, like all of the unconditional love and acceptance and all of the good stuff, like it's mine now. Yes. You know what else I got? family baggage. Should go the other way. Okay, you know what Carrie got? She got me. (laughs) And you're all like, way to go, Carrie. You know what else she got? She got my family baggage. She got my debt, right? She got all my junk. She got my bad attitude at times. We talked last week. She got my um, not-so-gentle attitude that I've had to grow in. She got all of that, too. She shared in all the good stuff, but she also had to share in the struggle because we are now one. That's the way marriage works. And this is what God says here. He says, so if you're going to share in God's glory, great. But you also have to share in the struggle. And the struggle is real there. Okay? And the question is, well, then where does it come from? Why? Why is it that we have to share in evil? Why does evil even happen? Why in a perfect world, or in a world where God could make it a perfect world, why does evil reign? Why is evil winning? You ever notice that when you turn on the news that evil seems to be winning? Like, it doesn't matter what channel you're looking at. I mean, you, you could be the Fox News people. Like, some of you are really, your hardcore Fox News people. You turn on Fox News, evil. You, some of you, you love CNN, okay? Don't, sit next to each other. But it doesn't matter what channel you turn on. It doesn't matter what perspective you have. It doesn't really matter. Evil seems to be winning. Why? Where does it come from? If God is great, this is, this is the atheist question. If God is great, if God is good, if God is powerful, then why does evil happen? Okay, but as Christians, we have to know the answer to this. Okay, evil happens because Genesis 3 happened. Okay, in Genesis 3, what happens, you guys know the story, but but we need to break this down a little bit. In Genesis 3, what happens is God creates everything perfectly. We say, well, in a perfect world, okay, in a world that God created, why should evil happen? Well, in a perfect world that God created, evil didn't happen. The world was perfect. Evil wasn't on the menu. Nothing was falling apart. There was no decay. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no struggle. There was no relational tension between the man and the woman. There was no problem with the earth. There were no earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and floods and droughts. Nobody was starving. There was plenty to eat. Everything was the way that God had intended it to be. But the serpent, we know that to be Satan, the serpent tempts the woman. He says, did God really say? That if you eat that, you're going to die. And she said, well, yeah, God said, eat everything, but don't touch that. And she says, or, or, or I'm sorry, the serpent says, but you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the word tells us that the woman looked at the fruit She saw the fruit. She heard the argument that this would be good for you, that God somehow wants you to have less than, that God is holding you back. And so she took it and she ate. And that's what we know as the fall. Okay? And it was because she was persuaded to the wrong view of freedom. So here's something we need to understand about evil. This is partly where evil comes from. This is how evil enters our world. Death, decay, destruction. All of it enters our world here in Genesis 3 in this grand theological construct called the fall of man. Okay, And here's what happened. We were convinced that freedom is to go and experience what God has said no to instead of experiencing the fullness of everything that God created for our pleasure. It's what happened at the fall, is that that instead of reveling in all of the goodness that God has put before us, we decided that real freedom was found in going after the things that God said were out of bounds, and sin creates that illusion of freedom, but in the end, it fools us into seeking this freedom from God instead of freedom in him. There's a significant difference in that. You ever have the attitude that, you know what, I don't have to do what the Bible says. How dare God ask me that? We actually usually don't pin that on God. Usually we pin that on the church, right? We're like, well, that's not really what God meant, even though that's exactly what we read. But that's not really what God meant. The church is just trying to put these extra things. How dare they do that? And so we end up, we end up chasing after freedom away from God rather than freedom in God. And that's a product of the fall. That's a product of sin entering the world, and it messes with everything. And so we see this. This is the doctrine of original sin, and everything is wrong now. Like, why is the world messed up? Why is it all jacked up? Why does it suck so bad? Well, here's why because mankind is broken. Physically, you are on a trajectory to death. It's bad news right? We're all, we're all going that way. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. Nobody gets out alive. We're all on this trajectory. For some of us, it's further away. For some of us, it's closer. For some of us, we just have no idea when it will reach up and bite us, but we're all on this trajectory because mankind is broken. Physically, we are not what we were intended to be. It's a product of the original sin, a product of the fall. Not only that, but the world's broken. the world's broke. God didn't create a world of chaos. God created a world of order. Earthquakes, famine, flooding, tornadoes. Our kids were in Joplin, Missouri earlier this year. They were in a community. They were doing deconstruction, uh, which trust me, with our teenagers, it's much better that they're doing deconstruction than construction love you guys but it's true and so they were tearing stuff out they were spraying mold they were ripping out drywall and and taking things down to studs and spraying and doing all this stuff why because in that town they had a tornado and while they were still recovering from the tornado they had a flood it's just bad business that's not the world god created with people starving because there's not enough food That's not the world God created, but because of the fall, the world is broken. Man's broken, the world's broken, and you guys know this one all too well. Morality's broken. The sense of right and wrong that comes from being made in the image of God is broken. That's why people mistreat each other. That's why people actively choose evil instead of righteousness. That's why we have things like genocide, murder, rape, abuse, Because the world is broken. Morality is broken. This is what we live in. And God says, hey, here is just a principle that you need to know. As Christians, evil and suffering is going to happen to you. And so if you're like me, and I was when I was a young Christian, you sit back and you say, okay, God, I get it. The world is broken. The fall happened, right? It's not just my body, but it's the whole world we live in, and it's morality and the way people treat each other. It all happened. But since I'm a Christian, I mean, God and I had this conversation many times in my early 20s. Since I'm a Christian, shouldn't I be exempt from that? Like, I mean, I get that there's judgment on the world. And I get that people that don't know you, they're going to continue to have pain and suffering and those things. But God, you and I are tight. You ever tell God, you ever remind God, hey God, we're tight. Come on, hook a guy up. Right? But God, you and I are tight. And so I shouldn't have to deal with any of this junk. I shouldn't have to deal with people mistreating me. Can't you help me out there? I shouldn't have to deal with people being mad at me for being a Christian. I shouldn't have to deal with being broke all the time. I shouldn't have to deal with all of this inconvenience because I'm a Christian. Except the principle is, absolutely you do. In fact, look what, look what Jesus says. If the world hates you, hey, guess what? It hated me first. You want to share in my glory? You got to share in my suffering, right? The world would love you if you acted like you belonged to it, but you don't belong to it. You belong to me you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and so now it hates you. And then it's this thing, like a slave isn't greater than its master, right? Do you really expect that the world is going to hate Jesus, that Jesus is going to deal directly with pain, suffering, sin, death, and decay? The worst of mankind, the worst of morality, Jesus dealt with. Said, do you really think you get to avoid that if you're going to follow me? So the principle we have to understand here, right off the bat, suffering is an expectation for the Christian. Suffering is an expectation. We continue. There's a promise, though. So um, you're like, oh, hey, feel-good message of the year. Suffering, yay. Let's all go out there and get after it. But it's, it's better than that, right? Because when God says suffering, he also says promise. And the promise is that God will make it right. This is what we have to understand here. This is the promise of God, that He is going to make everything okay. Okay, and everything is going to be as it was intended to be. Continue here in Romans 8. He says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that He'll reveal to us later. Okay? So, right there, you know, we just pause after that first, after verse 18 there. So, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he'll reveal to us later. You know what that means to me right there? It means that I don't care what your suffering is. Some of you have suffered lightly. Okay? We'll consider it like a hangnail. That's not major suffering. And so for you, when you say, oh, you know, I've suffered, I got a hangnail, and it's bad, okay? But, But when I say, look, that's never gonna compare to the glory that's to come later, you're like, yeah, I get that, it's a hangnail. Okay? But that promise isn't just for your hangnail. That promise is for the guy whose heart just exploded, too. Okay? Nothing that you suffer now will compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in you later. That promise is not just for little itty-bitty things. See, we're really good at this. Man, in this culture, we can take our minor inconveniences, and you know what we do? We're like, oh, that's suffering. Like, oh, man, my car broke down bad business. And you know what? It is bad business when your car breaks down because that's expensive. Okay, And you're like, oh man, might have to cancel my vacation so I can pay for my car. It's bad news. right? Oh, you know what? Forget it. I know what I'll do. I'll charge the vacation. That way it'll be fine. I can do both. Okay, And it's inconvenient. And I take the inconvenience and all of a sudden I look at it as suffering. And I say, well, that's suffering. You know what? That's not compared to the glory that'll happen later. And we're really good at that. But what I'm reading there about this pain and death and decay is that all suffering, the intense suffering, the suffering of pain that most of us have never even had to deal with, that that suffering will be nothing compared to the glory that's to come. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm picking on them a little bit because we're going to hear from them later on. But that means the suffering of John and Tina Clapp when their 11-year-old son passed away. As tragic as that was, as awful and heartbreaking as that is, as lonely as they are in those moments, hear me. Understand what I'm saying to you. That is nothing compared to the glory that awaits and will be revealed later. Nothing. I mean, that's what it says there. It is nothing compared to that. Literally, it doesn't even matter. The worst thing that we could imagine, the worst thing that they've gone through, the worst thing that I could imagine having to go through literally is nothing. It is a no deal when compared to the glory of the thing that awaits That's the promise. Yes, pain is real. The principle of suffering is real. You are going to suffer, doubly so because you're a Christian, because not only will you suffer in a broken world, but you'll suffer because of Jesus Christ in a broken world. But the promise is that suffering won't even compare with what's to come. Most of us can't put that into context. You know the best I could do for my kids with that context? The best I could do for my kids is moving to Vinton. We moved to Vinton, what, about three and a half years ago, we told the kids, we're moving to Vinton. We've always lived in the Quad Cities. The kids have been in Bettendorf their whole life, and we told them, you know what, here's what we're doing. We're moving to Vinton. Dad's going to be a pastor. It's happening. House is going on the market tomorrow. The thing is, we didn't tell our kids that we were going to start looking for churches because at the time, now it wouldn't be an issue, but at the time, they had some anxiety right? Like if if they knew something might happen, it was just this, they, they could not rest, they could not relax, they could not get past it because there's this thing that might happen and they would just fixate on it and dwell on it. And I mean, our searching for church took over a year and we just didn't want to do that to them and we almost went to several different places, and we went and we visited and we did this, and some of them didn't feel right, and some of it we didn't feel right to them, and, you know, God was just kind of holding us in reserve until we got the place that he wanted us to be, but this whole process, we just, we kind of kept them in the dark on purpose, prayerfully, but on purpose, and so when we sat them down, this was all news to them. Hey, we're moving to Vinton. Here it is on the map. It's about two hours away, Travis had just kind of come into his own with all of his friends. We lived in the neighborhood. He could ride his bike to school, and like, you know, it was like, hey, I'm just going to go out and throw a rock and find a friend to hang out with because they were all over the place. And, and yeah, sports and these things, and it was, it was just his thing. And, and we said, guys, we're moving to Vin. You would have thought it was tragic. It was the worst thing ever. Like, we had just robbed them of every earthly joy they were ever going to maybe be able to experience. Like we had broken them somehow. We had let them down. There was, in their seven and ten-year-old minds, there was intense suffering that happened in that moment. But here we are, three and a half years later, I can tell you that that suffering was nothing compared to the goodness that happened by getting here and getting established and making friends and getting involved in things. And now both of them would say, uh, in fact, they asked us this a while ago. It was about a year ago. It was weird. It was a weird question. Uh, We're we're having dinner. We're driving in the car or something. And and they're like, hey, if you guys die, do we have to move back to the Quad Cities? (laughs) That's a weird question. It's like, why? What do you know? And they're like, well, dad, suffering is a principle for all Christians. and we, no, they, but, but this is, okay, because here we are two and a half, three years later, and they're in. And so the suffering they experience now, and this is on such a small scale, was nothing compared to the goodness that, that was going to happen to them when they just trusted and submitted to the process and got here, and it was good. That's on a small earthly scale, but God says this in this grand cosmic spiritual way, I've got your back. I know it's hard now, I know it sucks now, I know it's difficult now, but nothing that you're going through now is going to matter compared to the glory that I'm going to put in front of you. And that's what this whole rest of this chunk is about. We keep going for all creation, not just us, but all creation is waiting for this moment when God will reveal who his children really are against its will. All creation was subjected to God's curse, right? The whole world, remember we talked about it, the physical body, the physical world, the moral composure of people, all of it was subjected to this curse from sin. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. See, there's this moment that's coming, and and it's set in stone. It hasn't happened yet. We don't know when it's going to happen, but God does. It's set in stone. Look at Revelation 21. It says, and I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain or pain. All these things are gone forever. See, this is the promise that God lays out in front of us. When he says in Romans 8, okay, uh, verse 18, he says, yeah, 17, he says, if you're going to share in his glory, you're going to share in his suffering. That's just matter of fact. Get that down. But then he gets to verse 18, he says, but don't worry about it. It's temporary because everything you suffer will pale in comparison. It will be nothing compared to the glory that's coming. And the glory that's coming is this moment when God says, I fix it all. God's home is now among his people. And God has nothing to do with sin. God has nothing to do with brokenness. And so when God says, I come and I make my home among my people, all of that is gone. All of that is wiped away. All of that is finished. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear from your eye does not mean your current tears. Because in this moment, there are no tears. But every tear that lingers from the pain and suffering and hardship and evil and tragedy from before. God says, I will wipe that away. I will make it right. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. They're gone forever. This is the moment we're waiting for. That's the promise that we have. Okay, and he continues in Romans 8, and he says, For we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Like that promise that something great is coming in Revelations? Here's what he says. He says that's like labor pains. Think about that for a second. Women, think about that for a second. Men, many of you, like me, were there, right? You held hands. You got snapped at. You experienced the phenomenon of the bad train wreck you're like, don't look. I can't help but looking. You've been there. I get it, right? right? But here's the thing, right? The pains of child... Listen, I don't know how it was for your wife, but with Travis, it was severe. With Aubrey, it was less because we'd been there, we'd experienced it, and the epidural worked a little bit. But with Travis, it was painful, and it was long, and it was arduous, But when it was over, this great promise had been fulfilled. And we had this beautiful who we thought was going to be. Hey, Trav, this is a fun story for you and everybody else in the church. Um, (laughs) This beautiful, what we thought was going to be a baby girl, turned out to be Travis. We had an ultrasound, and the lady was like, You know what? I'm not allowed to tell you for sure. But there's no doubt in my mind you're having a girl the room was pink, the three baby showers we had, all the girl clothes, Carrie went through this nesting phase, so the tags were ripped off, everything was washed and put away. Travis, Travis had a pink bedroom until we were having people come over for his first birthday, and we thought, huh, we probably ought to fix that. He was going to be Megan, but now he's Travis and we're happy about that. Riley actually cried. Like His big sister was so excited for a little sister. We're like, "Here's, here's your baby brother, and she's like, tears. She likes him now, too. Right? But this is the thing. This childbirth, this labor pains, that's what he says. We know all creation has been groaning as in pain of childbirth right up till now, when it's still happening. And we believers are also groaning, not whining but groaning, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, right? This all is happening, okay? But the pain actually equals some kind of prophecy, just like it does with labor pains. You have pain and labor. Yes, it hurts, but it tells you a story of what's going to happen soon, and what's going to happen soon is so worth the pain. that's the promise that we have. When you're like, what about this? It's meaningless. All of this pain, all of this suffering, everything that I'm going through, none of it makes sense. Why would God allow it? It's not meaningless. It's painting a picture of something that's about to be that is so good that you can't possibly fathom. It's worth it. We continue, okay? This last bit in this chunk, and it says, And we too wait. This is now um, where he's been personifying the world. The world has been groaning. The world has been waiting. And he's like, Oh, yeah, we are too. We too are waiting with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. Right? We were given this hope when we were saved. And if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it, but if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently, and that is a really confusing text. Okay, so I want to go through that with you just a little bit. So here's where you are, okay? Um, This is the moment that you're stuck in. You are stuck in this, yes, yes, you have, but not yet. It's the yes, it's now, but not really. Okay? And so this is what he's saying. It's like, go go back here. It says, we were given this hope when we were saved. That's past tense. That's happened. You were given the hope when you were saved. But then here's the thing: it's, but we still hope. Right? We're still waiting with eager hope for that day. And this is the nature of your salvation. Your salvation exists. This is what you need to understand about your salvation. It exists in the past, it exists in the present. And there's also a future salvation that you've not yet achieved. Okay? So understand this. Justification is your past salvation. That's the moment you come to Jesus Christ. Some of you here this morning have yet to do that. I'm just going to be bluntly honest with you. Okay? Some of you, you thought church sufficed. I will be a Christian-esque person. I'll go to church. I'll read my Bible every once in a while, toss some money in the offering plate when it goes by, and I'll be at church, and I'll be around Christian things, and that'll be good enough. But this moment of justification, this past moment for those of us that call ourselves Christians, for those of us that are in Christ, this is a moment when I give up. This is the full surrender. This is the full, unabridged, I give up. That's a hard place to be. This is the part where I realize that I am stuck in sin. That I need to be saved. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to do just that for me. It's the purpose of communion that we're going to celebrate later this morning. But that's the moment. That's the moment where we say, okay, you are now Christian, you are now saved. Your old life is gone. Second Corinthians 5.17, you should have it memorized by now as much as I reference it. Okay? The old life is gone. The new life has come in its place. This is this moment of regeneration is the fancy word for it, but you are now justified. That's a legal term. It means when God looks at you, he does not see your sin. Your sin was put on Christ on the cross. When God sees you, He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ given to you, and you are justified then. That means you are not guilty in a legal sense. That means that when you get there, when you're at that moment, when you're dead and you're standing in front of God and the books are opened, you will be found righteous, not because you did anything awesome. Not because you were baptized, not because you did communion, not because you said some confirmation things, not because you listened to Matt faithfully every week, uh, not because you gave regularly to the church or you did all this stuff. None of that matters. What matters is because you trusted Jesus Christ to do what you couldn't do for yourself. You knew who he was. He was the son of God. You know that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and you know he rose again and I trust that and I follow that. That's the moment of justification. And that is a past event. But presently, what's happening to us now as Christians is we are working out. Philippians 2.12 says, fearfully and wonderfully work out your salvation. That's a past event. It happened, but now continue working it out in your life. That's code for grow up as a Christian. Stop doing the things that you did before you were justified and start doing the things that Christ tells you to do. It's the process of justification. It's the process, I'm sorry, of sanctification. It's the process of growing up. Be better because. That's it. It's simple, right? It's hard, but it's simple. This is the, this is the moment we have where um, every day God and I have a conversation in bed, usually before I've had my coffee, before my feet hit the ground, I'm like, okay, God, here's where I jacked it up yesterday. Here's how I'm going to try harder today. Through the power of your spirit, will you help me live right? And you know what? There are times when I nail it. There are times when I catch myself when I'm prompted to do well or I'm prompted to say no to ungodliness and say yes to godliness and there's moments where it works and and I'm growing and then there are just as many moments where I stumble and I have to confess it and I have to try again to live in a way that honors God. This is a long process. In fact, this process of sanctification, you will not finish this side of the grave. You just won't get done we're never done growing. If you're here this morning and you're like I've been a Christian so long, I got, I'm nailing it. Sorry. You're never done growing. We always have moving to do. So your salvation is past and it's present, but it's also future. And that chunk in 1 Corinthians 15, we actually read that last week. That's the part that talks about the moment when God says, "Now I'm taking you, in all of this death and decay and despair and destruction. And I am remaking you into something that's glorious. He talks about our earthly bodies that, that falter and fail and fall apart and that face death into these new heavenly bodies that never die, that never decay, that never struggle. There's this moment of glorification when, get this, you're done growing now. Like, like for all the sadness that just happened when I said you never get there. Okay? You will. You're not going to be God Okay, that, that's a, those are some different re, uh, religions that will teach you that when you get there, you get to be God of your own planet, um, and, and those are ones you know. They knock on your door occasionally, Okay, but what, what we're going to say here is that you, you get glorified. You're now in this glorification state where you are exactly in this moment when you're glorified in heaven, when you're done, when we're there, when it's finished, the moment where all of the tears are gone, where all of the sorrow is gone, the moment where God says, hey, there's a time coming when this won't even matter because this is so good, this happens with glorification. And what that is, is that's when you are who you were always intended to be. Before sin entered the world, before sin messed it all up, before all of that happened, when you were supposed to be who you were intended to be, this is the moment where that all comes to fruition. All of the promises of God are here in this future moment for Christians. Understand that this is the journey that you're on. This is what's happening for us. This is the promise, okay? And so last thing, so we've had, you know, just the principle, suffering happens. The promise, God is gonna make it all okay. And here's the last thing that we need to know, the perspective that in the moment, God's got your back. And nothing is meaningless, okay? And we get this in the last few verses here as we finish through this. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be expressed in words. Okay, now, what that's really referring to there, okay, that's really referring to those moments where the pain and suffering is so intense and the groanings are so intense that you just don't even know what to do next. Like, the the tragedy is so stiff and so hard. I just don't know what to do with it. I don't know how I'm ever gonna get past it. I don't know how I'm gonna get by. And and it's just beating against me. But in those moments, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. I don't know what to pray for. All I can pray for is, is that it be over. Some of you have been there. Some of you have been there where the best prayer you could muster was, God, take me now, I'm done. I got nothing left. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for you, pleads for you, And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes, this is the promise, this is the great one here, and we know this. God promises, God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. See, here's the last promise that we see here. It's this thing that says, this is the perspective to have, no matter how bad it is, God's got it. God's got your back. God takes care of it. This is something that as Christians we intuitively know, but that it's hard for us to experience in the middle of the suck. It's a phrase that my brother and I always used to use with each other when things were bad. It was like, well, you know, it's supposed to be an encouragement, right? Well, you're just in the suck right now. Like, everything sucks right now, but it's going to be okay. You're just, you're in that. But the promise here is that God is going to redeem the suck. Doesn't mean that it's ever going to be good, right? It doesn't mean that what happened to you was ever part of God's plan for you. It doesn't mean that this bad thing, that God made this bad thing happen. That's not what it means. But what it means is that God promises here, for those that are Christians, for those that love God, are called according to God's purposes, that he is going to take this that was no good and he is somehow going to make something useful out of it he didn't cause it, he didn't want it, it's a byproduct of living in a broken awful world but he promises because he loves you and because he's in charge of all things that he's going to take it and he's going to somehow use it for your good, because your good is God's good, because when you are following God and you say God I put you first I want what you want then everything that God works out you are on board with this is the promise of redemption this is the promise that gives us hope this is the thing that tells you none of its meaningless none of it doesn't matter none of its bad for you all of it is working together in some mystical way that you can't possibly understand that does something good somebody dies of cancer God didn't orchestrate that God didn't plan that, but when you trust Him, He promises to do something with it. When you're in a car accident, when your son dies, when tragedy happens, when you're abused or abandoned, none of it's meaningless. And when you have that perspective, when you understand that it's not meaningless, that God will do something with it, it helps us deal. It helps us have hope. It helps us understand that what's coming. So much better that I can make it through this and knowing that the holy spirit is working in me and praying for me and guiding me And is interceding on my behalf that the holy spirit is having a conversation with the father in heaven while i'm a blubbering idiot I mean, come on who's been a blubbering idiot Thank you Like a couple of you were like I have everybody else like I don't even know what that looks like Yeah, whatever But when I'm a blubbering idiot, the Holy Spirit and God are having a conversation on my behalf. And Jesus Christ is sitting in the throne room interceding for me and going, yeah, he's with us. I paid the price for his sin. And the Holy Spirit is saying, and here's what he needs in his heart. Here's how you redeem this. And God is saying, I I will take care of all of this. And oh, yeah, by the way, there's a future day when you won't even remember this moment. Because what's happening is going to be so good. It's the promise. And, and we got to end this chunk here, these last two verses, with a big theological mess. Okay, um, and, and all I want, I'll, the only reason I'm showing you, well, one, is because they're here. And I said we were going through Romans 8, and it would be a little cheesy if I skipped these because they're controversial. Okay, But also because I want you to know that it's not random. None of this is random. For God knew his people in advance. And he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them the right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he will give them his glory, or he gave them his glory. What you're reading there is actually the past, present, and future of salvation, right? He's called you. That's this justification and this right standing, and you're growing. But hey, this glory is coming. Right, this is going to happen. Now, the reason this gets controversial is because of of, if a natural reading of this text um, tells you something about it's a doctrine called predestination. Okay, Um, and we're not going to dwell into this today, but I'll let you know what it is and what the viewpoints are a little bit. Um, But God knew His people in advance and He chose them. Okay, so that, along with some verses like Ephesians one eleven, would seem to indicate that God well before the foundation of the world, well before your birth, chose you, not because you were awesome, not because you did something special, not because he knew you were going to grow up to be Superman, but well before the foundation of the earth, God chose you to be in Christ. Okay? It's called the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election. Okay? Other people, other theologians, by, by the way, there are smart people, smarter than I am, that have different views on this, right? You can think either one of these and you're going to be okay as long as we remember what it means to be Christian, which is submitting to and following Jesus. But there are other people that say, well, Hans, that's not what we mean there. What we mean there is that God, looking because God is omnipresent right he exists all the time he's omniscient he knows everything so God looking into human history knew that you would choose Jesus and so that's what it means when he says then he called you to choose Jesus because he knew that you would do that and here's the thing if you're asking me to explain Hans how should we understand that what I'm going to say to you is you got to read some books and you've got to figure some stuff out. If you're asking me, okay, Hans, how do you understand that? Okay, then I'll answer you, and I'll tell you to give me grace if you disagree, and I'll give you grace if you disagree, because we're going to be okay, right? But I would say that I am 60% sure, it's a strong number, right? That what this means is that those of us that are in Christ are in Christ because God chose us to be in Christ. I can't reconcile that any other way, but again, I'm not mad at you if you do, but whether you believe this is this God foreknew what you would decide, and so therefore that's what this means, or if you view this as God predestined for you to choose this, by the way, if you want to, we'll talk more about this later, but I don't, I really don't think that that causes a problem with free will, okay, some of you are like, but what about free will? Yeah, I love free will, right? It's a doctrine in the Bible, it's a true thing. We can talk more about it later, but whether you believe this has to do with foreknowledge or you believe this has to do with election doesn't really matter because regardless of your view, what's clear and what we want to end on here, this focus, is this idea that God's purpose for people isn't an afterthought. God's plan for you is not something he came up with on a whim because he woke up and he realized. You ever wake up and you realize something was due today, especially you students, right? Like you woke up and you're like, oh man, I got to get that done. Right? And so you hurry up and you get it done, and it's kind of sloppy and haphazard and put together. I used to write great stories with terrible endings because I would be really excited. I'd get it, and I'd be working on the story. would be like whatever class it was for, and I'd write this thing or great papers, and it would be. And then, you know, I'd forget about it, and I'd wake up that morning and be like, oh, it's finished. And I'd hurry up and write down an ending and turn it in. God didn't do that with you regardless of your theological perspective of foreknowledge or election and predestination or any of those things, what's clear is that that God had a purpose that predates you for you. God has a plan for you, and it's this really clear thing that we see. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you can just rejoice in the fact that God, the God of the universe has always known you. The God of the universe has always known you, and he loves you And he's powerful, and he's supreme, and he desires good for you. You go back to those things, it's like, why would God allow evil to happen in the world? I get it, and it's a hard question. And theologically, we can understand why God allows evil and those things to happen, but but here's how we end this chunk, and as we go to communion today, here's here's the thing to know. You're not an afterthought to God. God knows you, God loves you, God is supreme, and God has promised in the middle of the suck to redeem everything for good, and he's promised that one day you won't even remember it because it won't matter at all compared to the future glory that's coming. It's that good. It's the promise for Christians. And so here's what we're going to do uh, before we come to communion. I promised that, you, that you'd get a chance to hear from John and, and Tina Clapp as they um, have worked through some of this suffering and pain and figuring out what does it mean. And I'm going to, I'll tell you, honestly, and they'll tell you, they're still trying to figure it out. But every day, I think, you know, that, that they're, they're figuring out where God is in all of this. And you'll hear John even say some of that in, in his testimony a little bit. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the ushers to come forward um, and collect this morning's offering. I'll remind you, if you're visiting with us here today, you're under no obligation to give. This is something that those of us that call Blessed Hope home, that we do to fund the ministries of the church. And the ministries of the church are all about Jesus. They're all about the salvation that we keep talking about. Okay, so as they're collecting the offering, I'll invite you to, uh, to watch um, on the screen. Let me pray for us first, though. Heavenly Father, God, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, scripture that that answers these hard questions for us. Why does evil happen? Why does suffering happen? Why is tragedy a thing? And why is it winning? And where are you when all of this is going on? But as soon as we get into your word, as soon as we pull it apart, we see the truth that, yes, it's happening, but it shouldn't surprise us because you told us it would happen. And that even though it's happening, you've got something so much better for us. And in the midst of all of it, that you are there to make it okay, to make it not meaningless, to make it matter, to make it count for us. So God, we thank you for those truths. We ask you uh, to take this offering that we're about to collect, to, uh, to multiply it, to use it uh, in ways to bring your message to people that are hurting, to bring life where there's death, to bring hope where there is none, to bring light into darkness. God, we, just, we ask you for that because you're good and we trust you. Father, we love you and praise you. Amen.